Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network, a podcast. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today marks the beginning of a summer-long series of podcasts about the system of camps and ghettos that pervaded Nazi Germany, its satellite states, and the regions it controlled during the Second World War. Later in the summer, I'll have interviews with Nick Waxman about the Nazi concentration camp system, with Sarah Helm about the women's camp at Ravensbrück, with Shelley Klein about the guards who staffed the camp, and with Dan Stone about the end and aftermath of the camp system. But today, I'm thrilled to kick off the series by welcoming Jeff McGarty to the show. Jeff is the author of two books about the German army in World War II, the first Inside Hitler's High Command, and the second War of Annihilation, Combat and Genocide on the Eastern Front, 1941. More recently, though, he has been most involved as the project director and general editor of the Encyclopedia of Camps and Ghettos, a monumental research project centered at the Jack, Joseph, and Morton Mandel Center for Advanced Hall Studies at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, where Jeff is senior applied research scholar. Two volumes of a projected eight have been published so far, and they are an invaluable resource for those interested in the Holocaust. In fact, and we'll talk about this in the interview, it's, it's, these are so comprehensive and thorough, it's hard to imagine this being done again. So it seems great that we kick off the series by talking about the encyclopedia with Jeff. Um, I should say, uh, by way of introduction, that Jeff and I go way back. We were in graduate school together, so I've known him just a little bit longer than I want to admit on air. Um, And so, Jeff, it's great to have you here. Thanks for being with us on New Books and Genocide Study, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Kelly. I'm very glad to be here. Um, I do have to start out with an official disclaimer um, in that the, uh, the views I state today will be my own and do not necessarily reflect those of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, although I certainly hope they do. (laughs) Well, maybe we'll start there, because you're at the museum. Um, I'm not sure when we were in graduate school together, either one of us would have predicted that you would have ended up there. So so maybe you can say a little bit about yourself and and how you came to be a historian and and what kind of historian you you think of yourself as. Sure. Um, Well, there came a point... uh, let me see, when I was about 27 or 28, I think, um, when I had tried a number of things. I'd been in the military for a little while. I'd been in the civilian world, and um, nothing was really attracting my, my attention or my passion, I should say. And I was trying to figure out what to do next, and I thought, you know, I've really always liked history. Uh, and this was during a brief window when there looked as though there were going to be jobs in history. <laughs> so I, uh, I, went to, I started grad school really on the spur of the moment out in California. And equally on the spur of the moment, I chose military history as a specialty. Um, I finished up there in a couple of years, and I went on to Ohio State and got my PhD, and uh, still in military history, still in European military history. Um, and uh, frankly, as I was approaching graduation, I was scared to death because I had been studying this specialty that is not necessarily all that popular in the academic world. and I didn't have any firm prospects. Um, but through a stroke of luck, I managed to get a job with a commission here in Washington. Um, and through a further stroke of luck, was then here to apply for a job at the Holocaust Museum. Um, they were quite vague about what they wanted. They said they wanted somebody who uh, specialized in European military history, or European history, uh, and was fluent in German. They didn't say anything mm-hmm. else. Um, but they brought me in for an interview, and about three quarters of the way through that, they said, oh, yes, you know, by the way, if we hire you, you'll be doing this encyclopedia. And uh, I said, great. And they liked me, and they hired me, and that was 15-plus years ago. Um, so I've really, it's, it's a matter of being in the right place at the right time with the skills that people were looking for. Now, I know when, when we were chatting before, you, you pointed out that you don't really consider yourself a Holocaust um, scholar, what, but, but rather you're a scholar of the Wehrmacht and, and perhaps a, a military historian. Um, what does that say about how you approach it? So, so, so you do this, you, you're not a Holocaust scholar, and yet you work at the museum and you work on these, this encyclopedia day after day after day. How does that lens of being a military historian, how does that shape how you approach the Holocaust? Well, it's, uh, I mean, it, when they when they hired me for this position, it was with the knowledge that I did not have a whole lot of uh, uh, mm-hmm. fundamental knowledge about the Holocaust. I, I didn't mm-hmm. get my degree in it. I had not done any systematic reading. Um, my background was in military history, but it was on uh, the Wehrmacht and you know, World War II more generally. Um, and I think that probably 
probably work to my advantage to some extent. Um, in terms of how it makes me approach the Holocaust, I, I think that I'm a little bit more aware, uh, and I say a little bit because the awareness has been growing over the past you know, 10 or 15 years, I think. Uh, a little bit more aware of the role of the German military um, in the Holocaust and of the nature of that role. Um, there were ways in which um, the military did not see itself as a Nazi institution. Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly a lot of the generals would have you know, been righteously indignant or whatever in their minds um, at being called Nazis. But there were very definite overlaps in the interests of the military and the Nazi party. And those overlaps were significant enough that the, the military took, as, as we know now, a very strong role in carrying out the final solution. Um, and I think I just, I have a little bit of extra knowledge that allows me to see the ways in which military officers could, without seeing themselves as Nazis or perhaps without seeing themselves as radical anti-Semites, could still find this confluence of interests that would allow them to support Nazi goals. Hmm. I'm, I'm, and this is pure speculation on my part, and maybe on yours. I don't know. Did you? What did you think of the prospect of of being hired on to edit an encyclopedia that was going to take decades, maybe? <laughs> well, that was uh, not difficult because I didn't think it was going to take decades. Um, <laughs> I, I thought I'd be around here for I don't know two, three, four years. Um, you know, get this thing polished out, and and that would be it. Um, of course, when I came on board, and I, I suspect you were going to head in this direction eventually mm -hmm. anyway, but uh, you know, the, the numbers of yeah. sites that we have encountered has been a huge surprise to everybody. Um, when I came on board, uh, I had a vision in my mind, if somebody had asked me how many camps there were, you know, I think I had vaguely heard that there were thousands, so I figured mm -hmm. you know, 2,000, 3,000. Uh, I came on board and they said, well, you're going to be looking for somewhere between 5,000 and 7,000 sites. And I thought that was an astronomical number. Yeah. And then I started to dig. I just started to look in some secondary sources and I started to put together uh, research that people had done on different kinds of camps and the numbers started to grow and it kept growing and growing and growing. We now have a working figure for the encyclopedia of 42,500 sites. Wow. And... I can tell you that that is a conservative figure. Um, there are many, literally tens of thousands of sites that we are either choosing not to cover or can't cover because of a lack of information or, or because there are just too many of them. Yeah. Um, what was it? So, well, actually, let's pursue that. So, so how do you talk about digging through, through secondary sources? Um, how do you find out about 42,000 camps? <laughs> uh, one bite at a time. Um, <laughs> that's, that's pretty much been it. I mean, you know, someone handed me first a, um, a book by Gudrun Schwartz called uh, mm -hmm. Die Nationalsozialistische Lager, Sozialisten Lager, excuse me, mm -hmm. um, you know, the National Socialist Camps. And that was sort of a survey of the different kinds of camps and how many there were. Um, it proves that she was vastly underestimating some of the numbers, um, but yeah. that was where I started, and I, I started by just adding those up, and you know that was within a few weeks of my arrival, I think, and, and that number was not 7,000, it was more like 9,000, and I thought, oh, well, this is interesting. <laughs> um, from there, it's a matter of, um, well, two main ways of doing this. One is to look for uh, research that people have already done. Um, and that, you know, it's, so it's a matter of bringing together numbers where nobody had ever put them together before. You know, you'll have an mm -hmm. expert in forced labor camps, you'll have an expert in POW camps, you know, but they two, those two might not have ever talked to each other. Um, so you take their totals and put them together. Mm -hmm. um, but beyond that, there are some categories of camps that simply have never really been researched before. Nobody's tried to find out how many mm. there were or where there were, where they were. Um, and that's a matter of going into the records and, um, you know, just counting them up. Um, you know, you, you come across documents that 
name particular camps and you try to find out what those camps were and add them to your categories. So do you have an example? What, what kinds of camps are those that people didn't know existed or didn't recognize before? Do you have an example or two? Um, well, I'm, I'm not sure I could say that there were too many categories that people didn't mm -hmm. know existed, but the numbers have not been firm. Um, okay. We have talked, for example, for years about uh, 400 ghettos. Mm -hmm. um, we have a panel in our permanent exhibition that, that talks about 400 ghettos, and isn't that a huge number of ghettos? Um, I'm still working to get that panel changed because um, <laughs> there were more like 1,150 ghettos, uh, just the German-run ghettos. There mm -hmm. were another 300 or 400 that were run by other countries. Um, so, you know, it's it's a matter usually of expanding the numbers rather than than the categories. Certainly, there are a lot of categories that most people have never heard of, um, especially some of the smaller ones. Um, but even there, there's usually some specialist somewhere that has done a study, and they just mm -hmm. haven't, you know, they haven't come up with all the numbers on them. I, I'm guessing you have an army of people across the world working on this. We have uh, at this point in our database, I think about 650. Mm -hmm. um, who are contributing or have contributed in one way or another, that's probably a small number. I mean, it's probably closer to 800 or something like that yeah. when you factor in all the people who have, who have done something. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and then on board we have, uh, well, let me see, me and two other permanent faculty members, faculty, uh, staff members, um, and then we have about six uh, contract researchers. Who, whose idea was this insect? Was it to start? So, so you said that, that you I'm sorry, came I on could, board. I didn't hear the first part of that. Yeah, you, you said you came on board with the project already kind of in people's mind. Whose idea was it to start? You know, I don't know the early history uh, all that thoroughly, but mm -hmm. apparently this was one of those fortunate instances in which a donor approached the center uh, mm -hmm. and said, I would like to support something. I don't know exactly what. And the, the center, kind of donor. yeah, exactly. Um, and the center that was the the David Bader, excuse me, the Helen Bader Foundation. Uh, David Bader was the the son who uh, who represented them, um, and uh, they very generously donated to this project. They liked the sound of it. Um, hmm. and we we came up with the idea, or the, the staff here came up with the idea, um, and then they uh, they hired me later on to run it. So. I'm struck as I read the various forewords and introductions and, and materials here. I notice a variety of different kinds of goals in various places. What what is your hope for what what purpose these these, these encyclopedias will serve? Well, we really have four things in mind. Um, one is to provide as much basic information about the individual sites as we possibly can. So in the entries, we're trying to answer questions like, when did this place open? When did it close? Why was it built and by whom? Uh, who ran it? Who guarded it? What kinds of prisoners were there? How many? Uh, if prisoners died, why and by what means? Um, what kinds of work did people do? What was life like in the camp? Um, were camp personnel tried after the war? All these sorts of things are what we're, we're trying to get at. So that's that's our perhaps our fundamental purpose. Um, we also know that ours is not going to be the last word on any of this. Mm. So we include um, citations to primary source documents in the entries. Mm -hmm. And we also have a section at the end of each entry that describes the various archival and published sources that we've um, referred to in that entry, or that the author has. Um, so people can see what we've looked at. They can you know, see where they need to go to find out more or what other you know, sources they might need to check. Um, the third is to give people an idea of the larger structures involved. Um, so we've organized the volumes according to, uh, each, each volume addresses a particular group of camps, either by its subordination, uh, camps under the German military, for example, uh, or by its type, um, you know, ghettos, there was no larger structure that ran the ghettos, but they all had things in common. Um, so people can have a chance to learn not just about an individual site, uh, but about the system within which it existed. Uh, and we have 
usually larger uh, introductory uh, essays that, that describe you know, how things were run on a higher level. Uh, and then finally, the, the fourth um, goal is memorialization. Mm. Um, we actually had a meeting for uh, survivors, survivor volunteers, after the first volume came out in 2009. Um, and it quickly became apparent that the academic purposes of this encyclopedia were all well and good, but not really what was important to them. Uh, they were just very pleased that somebody was finally documenting all of these thousands of places where people suffered and died. Um, so we, we really were really in touch with how important that is to the people who, who lived through it and to their children and grandchildren. I know you said that, that you hope these will not be the last words, and that comes through both in your, your, your statement but also in several places in the materials. Um, and I'm wondering about what that means in a world where so much is online, um, and I don't, I, I don't know whether there's any intention of putting these online or not. I guess I should have checked before, but I know that at least what I've seen of these, these are physical, you know, massive books that mm -hmm. go in libraries or in people's collections. And my guess is this process is enormously expensive. So it's unlikely that somebody's going to do a second version of this, at least my guess is. So what does it look like for people to kind of take these as jumping off points and, and flesh out um, the pictures that you start with. Yeah, um, and this has been and, and continues to be the subject of, uh, of strong internal debates. Um, we're considering, for example, some sort of web-based format for our seventh volume, which mm -hmm. will deal with uh, 30,000 or more Oh, um, yeah, camps camps for foreign forced laborers. I mean, we we obviously cannot have individual entries for all of those. Um, <laughs> we have developed a format that looks at the system at the Christ level. That is the German, like a German county. Mm -hmm. um, there were about 1,200 uh, of these counties in Germany. About another 300 similar districts outside of Germany that had forced labor camps in them, um, and each one of those had you know, a dozen or two dozen or 30 or whatever um, forced labor camps, at least. And so we're, we're developing entries, you know, one entry per Christ, um, and we can produce a, a hardcover book like that. Mm -hmm. But we're talking very seriously now about whether or not that's what we want to do. You know, mm -hmm. Would it not be better to um, create a, a sort of never-ending database online yeah. that could be continually improved and continually expanded um, so that, you know, we're not producing something that is obsolescent as soon as it hits the shelves. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we would really like to do that, but there are practical concerns, too. We, we would be, in essence, creating a, a project without any firm end, and, um, of course, you have to find somebody to pay for that. Uh, that's, a, that's a practical concern. Yeah. Um, in terms of what it's like for the user, um, you know, when when we've wrestled with this with this kind of question that we're we're facing with Volume Seven, um, one argument is that there is only so much we can do. Um, mm -hmm. We're already giving folks more than exists at present. Uh, they're going to be able to take this and have a good solid foundation for any more detailed research that they want to do, and that's that may be the best that we can do. Um, we may not be able to to provide, you know, the be-all and end-all uh, on this subject. I just revised my opening statement from decades to centuries that you'll be doing this work. But. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I used to joke that this project was going to continue past my retirement, and I'm not joking anymore. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, we've been at it for 15 years, and uh, you know, it's going to be a long time before it's finished. Well, you were the volume editor for the first volume, mm -hmm. um, which um, dealt with the camp, uh, concentration camps, is that right? Yes. Is that the label you used? Um, one of the things that I was intrigued by um, as I read through the materials was was the way in which attempting to be so comprehensive um, offered the opportunity for new kind of analytical insights. Mm -hmm. um, can you maybe 
Talk a little bit about what you learned about the concentration camps overall from the process of accumulating these vast numbers of individual um, descriptions. Yes. Um, and I'm actually, if, if I may, I'm going to expand it, expand it beyond just the concentration sure, sure. camps. Yep. Um, there are a number of, of insights that have come to mind over the years. Uh, one is the sort of centrality of the camp idea to the mm -hmm. national socialist state. Um, you know, obviously, there were other nations that used camps of one kind or another. We used them, the Japanese used them, the Soviets had their gulag, you know, so on and so forth. But I'm not aware of another regime for whom the camp was such a, a universal answer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I referred earlier to the many thousands of camps that we're not covering, and, and many of those we're not covering because they were not meant to be persecutorial, if you will. Um, the Germans had about 5,000 camps for their own children to get them away from cities, away from bombing raids. Mm -hmm. And these became pretty horrible places in many instances, sort of like uh -huh. Lord of the Flies with the Nazis in charge and, you know, you can, you can imagine you know, the strong preying on the weak, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But we're not going to include those because obviously the Germans did not mean to persecute their own children. Um, and there are several categories that sort of fall under that huh. rubric, if you will. Um, but it, it just seems that whenever the Nazis needed to achieve some goal, some collective goal, they would hit upon camps as a solution. You know, it might be building the Autobahn. They had, they had in essence, forced labor camps for their own citizens uh, early on, or build, building the West Wall. Um, you know, they had these camps for their children. They had camps for uh, German, ethnic Germans that they were going to settle in Poland. Um, you know, Camps for everything. Um, you know, I would love to have time to write a good, you know, secondary work on camps as a as a concept in Nazism. Um, I was going to say, so where does that come from? Was that present initially in the kind of ideas of the people who will become Nazis before the Nazi idea existed, or? I believe so, but I've not had the chance to do enough reading to really yeah. to really pin that down. Um, hmm. You know, I, I think there was a there was something in German culture about, you know, collective effort, um, you know, living together and working together and all that sort of thing. Um, you know, certainly there were camps in Germany before the Nazis came to power. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. Justice Ministry was running uh, prisoner camps, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I, you know, beyond that, I don't really know where this yeah. where this idea came huh. from. Um, so that's that's one thing is this, this sort of centrality. Um, another is the the different connections among the different camps and kinds of camps. Um, you know, I think most people tend to think of camps, categories of camps in isolation, POW camps, concentration camps, forced labor camps, whatever. Um, but there was a lot of back and forth and what, what we refer to as paths of persecution where a prisoner would go from one kind of facility to another. Um, I have worked, for example, with one of our survival volunteers, uh, Henry Greenbaum, who started out as a, a boy in the uh, Starakowicz ghetto in Poland, uh, was then shipped to a forced labor camp for Jews nearby, then to the Auschwitz-Monowitz uh, industrial site, then to the Flossenburg concentration camp, and he was being marched to Dachau when the American army caught up with his column and, and liberated him. Mm. Um, and that sort of thing was quite common. Um, you had forced laborers who, uh, if they weren't, if they were judged not to be working hard enough, uh, a regular civilian forced laborer could be sent to something called a, um, a work education camp um, for up to eight weeks. And these, these were run by the, uh, the German police. Um, and you know, you were put to work under very stringent conditions there, and if after eight weeks you had shown sufficient improvement in your attitude, you could be sent back to your to your work site. If not, you would be sent on to a concentration camp. Hmm. So there were lots of these kinds of connections um, and lots of different factors. I guess this, this blends into the next lesson we've learned is all the different factors, all the different... Uh, you know, considerations that would go into an individual's fate. Um, you know, the, the specific camp where you wound up, because 
even within categories, there could be great differences in conditions among camps. Uh, a lot depended on the kind of work that was being done. Um, you know, the attitude of the commandant, of the guards, um, the kinds of food that were available at that particular camp. Um, and then your individual category, what race you were, what nationality you were, why you were being incarcerated, what particular skills you might have. Uh, you know, Primo Levi, as a Jew, survived uh, the camp experience because he was a chemist and he was put to work in a laboratory where he was out of the weather, he was not doing heavy physical labor, um, and he managed to, to get through the experience that way. Um, you know, other people had sort of the opposite experience. I mean, in general, American POWs did quite well, but there was one instance in which a POW camp that was being run by the SS at that point um, pulled out all the American soldiers with who were Jewish or had Jewish-sounding names and put them into a concentration camp, and a lot of them died. Hmm. Um, so you know, there, was, there was a lot that went into individual fates, um, and studying all of these camps in, as, in, in the collective sense um, has helped us to understand that. Well, this most recent volume is specifically about ghettos, so let's talk for a few minutes about ghettos. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the things I was really kind of struck by is that, again, by having to kind of wrestle with this vast amount of material, it forced you to come up with a, a definition that's maybe a little different than other people have used before. So, so how are you defining ghettos in this, this volume? Yeah. Um, well, it's, I, I, you referred to this, that, that you know, this has forced us to come up with definitions. We've, mm -hmm. you know, because we have a, a practical purpose, we have to create a, uh, a published work. We thus have to define what it is that we're looking at. Um, and I think when most people think of a ghetto, they probably think of a place like Warsaw or Woj or someplace like that that mm -hmm. had a wall around it that had a large number of people who were there for a long time and had sort of a complete government of its own uh, to the extent that people know about these things. Um, but region by region as ghettos were set up, um, there were many, many places that, that we're defining as ghettos, uh, that the Germans defined as ghettos, that didn't have a big wall, didn't have a lot of people. Uh, I mean, I think we have a, we had a rule of thumb, I think, of a minimum of 20 people or so who were in a location for at least a month, something along those lines. Um, and this accounts for places, now most of them were a good deal larger than that, um, but very often the Germans would start by simply telling the Jews in a particular village, um, you can't leave. And they would put up notices around the village saying, if, you, if you're caught outside these boundaries, you'll be shot. And then they would take those smaller villages and they would consolidate them into larger towns. And sometimes they would take the larger towns and move those people to, to cities. Um, that is, if they didn't just take people outside the town and shoot them, which they yeah. very often did. Um, so we've, we've broadened the definition, um, not really for specialists. I mean, uh, people who had studied the ghettos were aware of these things. Um, but for most people, um, and in some very important cases uh, uh, for legal authorities, we've broadened the definition of ghettos uh, to include these places where people, you know, any place where the Jews were concentrated and confined uh, prior to being sent to some other fate, um, you know, if they were there for some length of time, and especially if they developed some sort of internal social structure, um, you know, that's a ghetto. So one of the things that struck me when I was reading the introduction here is the point that it's not possible to talk about a ghetto system. Uh, in contrast to the concentration camps, at least uh, according to um, the book written by uh, a guest, Nick Waxen, who we'll have on later in the, the summer, who, who quite clearly talks about a kind of set of procedures and assumptions that carry through from all the way from the kind of initial camp at Dachau, or initial maybe first formal camp at Dachau, progressing on through the rest of the series. So, so what are some of the explanations that German commanders gave um, for why they created ghettos in the first place? And how did they differ from one another? Yeah, um, I mean, it, it's true that there was no central system. There were orders that went out um, for the formation of ghettos, uh, but very broad ones. I mean, they didn't really say a whole lot more than that. 
this was primarily an ad hoc measure. Uh, the Germans had to do something with the Jews that they were encountering. Uh, when they conquered Poland, they were not yet at the point where they had decided to kill all the Jews. Um, so although some Jews were killed, um, that was sort of coincidence with the fact that the Germans were killing off Polish intelligentsia and school teachers and priests and political leaders, that sort of thing. And some Jews were caught up in that. Um, and Jews were being abused and that sort of thing. But in general, the Germans had to figure out, well, okay, we've just we've just conquered about three million Jews. What do we do with them? Um, well, for the time being, let's just make sure that they all stay in one place. And that, that, that's pretty much uh, as sophisticated as it got. Mm-hmm. Now, later on, um, there were debates about what to do with the Jews. Um, you know, there was some effort to deprive them of food. Um, there was very little medical uh, attention given to them. So there was some thought of, well, you know, starvation and disease will wipe them out over time. Um, and there was effort to put them to work. Uh, many of the able-bodied were taken out and sent to special forced labor camps for Jews, or they were put to work right in the in the ghetto. Um, but here again, this was not; these were not intended as work camps, or they were not intended as extermination sites to begin with. It was it was just a way of getting control of the Jews. Um, by the time the Germans invaded the Soviet Union, you see, in essence, a more sort of well thought out process, where the German army would come in, uh, the Einsatzgruppe would follow them. Especially at the beginning, they would they would very often shoot uh, the male Jews of military age, um, but then that still left women and children. Uh, or the advance was so rapid that they couldn't. You know, later on, when they decided to shoot everybody, they just didn't have the opportunity to do that. And so, any Jews that were left over um, when the army came through, the army would form a ghetto, or the SS would form a ghetto, and confine them in there until the second sweep of the Einsatzgruppen and the police would come through and, and shoot them or they would be sent to extermination centers or something along those lines. Um, so this is what I'm trying to get across is simply that this was an ad hoc control measure more than it was a, a deliberately thought out step in the process of extermination. And so the implication is, and, and Chris Browning talks about this in his introduction, the implication is that that one way of conceptualizing the Holocaust and ghettos, which is that ghettos formed a step in a, a longer-term, clearly thought-out uh, process of events and decisions that led, maybe not inevitably, but logically to destruction. We don't we don't think about ghettos in that way anymore. No, no, I don't think we do. Um, you know, as I say, it was it does fit into the process, and that's why people. I think starting with, with uh, Hilbert came up with um, this idea that it was a deliberate step-by-step planned out process. Um, you know, it, it fit into what the Germans eventually decided to do, but it wasn't, wasn't all that much of a plan to begin with. And so the flip side of that argument, um, which Browning kind of labels the, the cumulative radicalization argument, and I'm truncating his phrase, but um, is that ghettos were not part of this intentional process, teleological process, but rather the experience of the ghettos and the wrestling about what to do with Jews in ghettos formed part of the chain of decisions that led the Germans to a decision to implement a policy of destruction. Is that does that make sense? I think it does. Interpretive framework. Yeah. I think it does because and. and you know, here again, I'll emphasize that I'm I'm not really a scholar of the Holocaust, but yeah. in as much as I have read about this, and and uh, Chris Browning's book on the origins of the of the Holocaust, I think lays this out pretty well. Um, you know, the the Nazis always had an intention to do something about what they called the Jewish question um, or the Jewish problem, um, but they didn't know what, and and they didn't even really know what the realm of the possible was. So along the way, they, you know, initially, when they just controlled Germany, the thought was, well, just get them out of Germany. And then the thought was, no, we're going to, as, as we expand through Europe, we're going to do something with them. 
Um, we'll we'll send them to Madagascar. Well, no, that's that's not going to work. Well, we'll send them to Siberia. Well, no, it turns out we're not winning that war, so we can't do that. Well, what are we going to do with them? And through a process that involves both feedback from below and instructions from above, they eventually hit upon the idea of, well, let's kill them all. Um, and the ghettos sort of fit right into the middle of this because before you can kill them all, you have to, you have them around, you have to do something with them. Um, and, uh, you know, keeping them together in, in segregated communities is, you know, sort of a natural step. You talking about there, there, you, you point out there are different well, a lot of differences between various ghettos. Are there some kind of common elements that occurred in most or nearly all ghettos? Well, I don't think there was ever. I mean, I'm I'm not aware of any ghettos where there were adequate supplies of food or yeah. medicine or mm -hmm. or housing uh, or fuel. I mean, the the conditions were miserable in all of them. Mm -hmm. um, I think most of the differences in my mind came about, and I'm, I'm just going off of you know, all the entries that I, that I read mm -hmm. while that was in, in, in production. Um, you know, in, in, in a certain fundamental way, there was a, a horrifying sameness to all of these. You know, the Germans yeah. came in, they started abusing people, they formed this ghetto, we didn't have enough to eat, a lot of people died, and then they took everybody out and killed them. Um, but there were differences among ghettos, um, I would say mostly related to size. You know, if a, if a ghetto was of a sufficient size and lasted long enough, then the people inside of it could work for their own betterment. They could form a police force. They could form a, well, the Germans usually insisted that they form a, a Jewish council, a Judenrat, um, to carry out the Germans' orders. Uh, but beyond that, the Judenrat was often responsible for, you know, putting into place some sort of social welfare network, um, you know, whatever schools there might be, um, you know, anything. Some, sometimes they, the Judenrat took, took part in resistance, uh, helping people, people to escape, things of that nature. Um, but I think it's probably the size and longevity of a, of a ghetto that made the big difference there. Were there ghettos, ghettos that were mostly or, or largely non-Jewish? No, I'm not aware of any any anything called a ghetto that was not that was not Jewish. And that was my thought too. And yet there are clearly targeted populations. Mm -hmm. um, is, what does that say about this concept? Or or maybe it doesn't say anything and reflects the ad hoc nature of these. But but is there something you can draw from that about? The, the essence of what a ghetto is, that this was specific to Jews as opposed to other populations? Well, I think, I mean, I, you can look down the road and wonder what the Germans would have done with the mm -hmm. Poles, for example, uh -huh. um, or with other Slavic peoples. Um, you can look at what they did with, with uh, Roma and Sinti, um, mm -hmm. whom they called gypsies. Um, you know, they're, they're there weren't large enough communities of Roma and Sinti, to my knowledge, that, that the Germans ever thought of setting up ghettos for them, but they did mm -hmm. certainly concentrate them in camps. Um, they had special camps for gypsies, um, and some of them wound up being sent to places like Auschwitz and, and exterminated. Um, but I think with the Jews, I mean, this, there was a combination of, of two factors. It was a, a population that, that Nazism was fundamentally opposed to and wanted to eradicate. Um, or get rid of in some way. Um, and it was a large enough population that you had to do something with them. You had to take some sort of control measure. Um, and probably I'm, I'm guessing that one of the considerations here was that it, it was too large a population to form a, at least to immediately form a camp network to hold them. Mm. That's why they probably hit upon the idea of ghettos. Like, well, we'll, we'll just shove them into these places where there are already houses. Um, or there's already some place for them to live. We'll just confine them there. Um, and there was probably a certain amount of association with the the old traditional idea of a Jewish ghetto. Um, you know, I'm sure that worked in somehow. So if I read right, there's no ghettos in the West. Correct. Is that is that right? So why not? Well. I hadn't given this a whole lot of thought except to say that 
for one thing, in the West, the Germans very early on decided on a whole different approach. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in the East, I guess there are several factors here. Number one is there are there are just fewer Jews in the West for the Germans to have to deal with. Um, it's not the millions that they run into when they go into Poland and into the Western Soviet Union. Um, so they, they probably don't have to, they don't have to think in terms of setting up special neighborhoods for them. They also don't want to carry out the same sorts of measures in the West that they do in the East. The East mm-hmm. is far away. You can, to some extent, keep things a secret. I mean, that's really a fallacy, but it was a little bit harder to find out what was going on in the East. You start rounding people up and, and putting them into ghettos and, and starving them in France, word of that is going to get out very quickly. Um, the the measures against the Jews of France and, and the other Western countries um, were things that were primarily instituted once the, the decision for the final solution had been made. Um, and so at that point, it was probably easier and there were, there were other um, considerations making it more practical, if you will. To simply take those people, you hold them in, in camps for a little while, but basically you are shipping them to the east to do with what you're going to do. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, so you've got all of these, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of, of, of kind of explanations or descriptions of individual ghettos. Are there questions um, that now emerge from that that maybe we hadn't thought of to think of before this this encyclopedia, this volume was completed? Or, or with the first volume, either with concentration camps, either one. Um, what do you have any questions in mind? I'm not sure what you're. No, about. I don't. I'm wondering. <laughs> well, I'm wondering. So, so all of this work has been done, and we clearly people have been working on the subject of camps and ghettos for for decades now. Mm-hmm. What's left to know? Oh well, <laughs> yeah, that's that's been one of the surprising parts of the whole thing. Um, hmm. I mean, a, a lot of people have that reaction. Like, what? We we didn't know about this already? Yeah. Um, you know, that's that's the big question, if you will. Um, and I think it was the case that, as with other historical topics having to do with the Second World War in general, um, there is a lot more there to find out than most people assume. Hmm. Uh, and there was a lot less work done in the past than most people assume. Um I mean, we're quite lucky, I think, that we started this project when we did, because there was already a lot of research done on the concentration camps, which we and we chose those for our first volume, in part for that reason. Um, but still, there were about 30% of those entries that we had to do ourselves. Hmm. Um, and there are other kinds of camps, well, forced labor camps, for example, where it's only been in the last 20 years or so that people have really started to focus in on the individual sites. Uh, you have a lot of regional studies in Germany, a lot of local, even, even high school essay contests about, you know, mm-hmm. write something about the local camp. Um, and a lot of that work simply hadn't been done. Uh, and when you think of all the tens of thousands of sites that we're talking about, um, the fact that they were forgotten for so many decades, um, and then, you know, all of a sudden people sort of come upon them and, Oh, good heavens, you know, we have this enormous task in front of us to document these. Uh, it just, it, it takes a lot of time. Uh, and yeah, and there, are only, there are only so many people who are crazy enough to try and do it. So. <laughs> well, you mentioned memorialization, and one of the things I was struck by was this comment that unlike many of the camps, which have, at least my gut feeling is maybe become more visible in the last 20 or 30 years, ghettos are fading away. Um, at least in the physical memory, right? The, the, the the buildings or the neighborhoods are being reconstructed. The former fences or walls are gone. Mm-hmm. Um, does that make a difference in terms of researching them or, or writing about them? Different doing the ghettos, you mean? Yeah, as opposed um, to maybe concentration camps or labor camps. Or well, you know, I I don't I don't think so because I I think maybe I have a slightly different perception. I. Hmm. There are very few of any of the kinds of camps or, or ghettos hmm. um, that exist in any recognizable form today. Um, you know, the, the 30,000 or more forced labor sites, um, many of these 
you know, were torn down very quickly after the war. Many of them you might not even recognize as a camp, per se. Um, there were, for example, um, you could call them community camps, um, Gemeinschaftslager, uh, in farming communities uh, or in, in small towns that had a number of small manufacturing facilities where you would have all the prisoners together in a building and it would just be a nondescript building. I mean, today it's probably being used as a, a warehouse or a dormitory or who knows what. Um, you keep them there and then every day they go out in twos and threes and half dozens or dozens to different work sites and they come back in the evening. Um, a lot of, so a lot of these places, if they exist at all anymore, they just look like old buildings. Um, you know, not all of these places had wire and watchtowers and, and things of that nature. Um, and if they did, those things have long since been torn down. Um, yeah, you know, so I'm glad you said that because, yeah, I, so I think I said that I took students to Europe and over the past, I don't know, decade, decade and a half, I've taken people to Auschwitz and to, um, Majdanek and, um, Dachau and Buchenwald and, and Terzin and a couple others, but but I think you're right. I, I think maybe the and and what I've seen there is the kind of number of visitors go up mm -hmm. over time, and the awareness of those camps go up. And I wonder if the effect of that hasn't been to make us forget all of these other camps that you're now discovering. Well, it, it certainly. I I don't know. I I honestly don't know if that's been the case mm -hmm. or not. Um, there certainly hasn't been that kind of effort devoted to some of the other categories of camps. Um, you know, a lot of the concentration camp memorials now do have displays in their museums or do have information about all the subcamps. And you can go out and find the locations of a lot of these mm -hmm. places. And sometimes there's a memorial stone or something along those lines. Um, but when you talk about the forced labor camps, I mean, those, a lot of those were under the control of individual German companies uh, or local labor authorities. Um, there's, no, there's no there there. There's no central, yeah. there's no main concentration camp that can set itself up as a memorial and museum and then have information about the subcamps. Um, there's just nothing, there's, there's nobody to memorialize these things. Mm -hmm. um, some of the better known of the other categories, there are sometimes sites for these. Uh, some of the euthanasia, so-called euthanasia centers, for example. Uh -huh. um, I, some of the POW camps, uh, the larger ones, I think you can find you can find things there. Um, but for a lot of the, I mean, you know, as I said earlier, a lot of these smaller categories, people just have no clue that they ever existed. Um, you know, never mind the physical location, but even just the concept. You know, a, a Germanization site. You know, we still haven't gotten to those, so I still don't know mm -hmm. where those were, or, or exactly how many there were. But these were places where the the Germans uh, held, basically kidnapped Polish children, sometimes Russian children, who looked as though they might have Aryan features, um, and they would evaluate them, and if they were found suitable, they would be given to German parents to raise. Huh. Um, those were probably, I'm guessing, within, you know, German hospitals in the East. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there were there were lots of things like that that, just, you know, any knowledge of these has disappeared from popular consciousness. That's mm -hmm. one of the reasons I'm glad that we're doing what we're doing. Well, we've taken a lot of your time. Just a couple last questions. And the first one is, you're, you're two volumes down, Concentration Camps and Ghettos. Can you mm -hmm. briefly sketch out for us the kind of organization of the last volumes? Sure. And, and um, some sense of when they'll appear? <laughs> yeah. Um, on volume, tape, remember, so. Yeah, I know. Uh, volume three is um, Camps and Ghettos Under the Control of Regimes Aligned with Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. So Vichy France, Italy, Romania, Bulgaria, Hungary, and you know, half a dozen other places uh, that had their own camp systems. We're, we're covering those. Uh, volume four is camps under the Wehrmacht, the German military. That's mostly POW camps, um, but also disciplinary camps for Wehrmacht soldiers, uh, and also brothels. Uh, a lot of people don't realize, uh, you know, they may have heard of the, the so-called comfort women that the Japanese army forced into sexual slavery. Uh, they don't realize that the Germans did exactly the same thing. Um, so we're covering those as well. Uh, volume five is... SS camps for Jews, that is not the concentration camps, but other kinds of camps, 
uh, especially forced labor camps for Jews. There were about 2,400 of those. Uh, the extermination centers will go in there. Um, volume six is police and SS camps for non-Jews. Uh, there were a lot of uh, just police detention camps and, and various kinds of camps that the SS ran for other kinds of prisoners. Volume seven is that massive one uh, about the uh, camps for foreign forced laborers, the, the 30,000 or more. And then volume eight is sort of a catch-all for categories that don't fit in anywhere else. Um, excuse me, the, um, the so-called euthanasia sites will be in there, um, the Germanization sites, uh, justice ministry, uh, prisons, normal prisons, that sort of thing, and camps. Um, so that'll, that'll fit in volume eight, and then we'll be done. Um, volume three should be coming out within about a year and a half. Volume four, I hope, within about a year after that. After that, it gets a little iffy <laughs> because of the numbers involved and, and sure. you know, staff and funding and all of that. Yeah. So we'll see. And so the last question, um, I always ask guests to, to suggest one or two books um, on their subject mm -hmm. that they think um, that they would recommend to listeners. So do sure. you have one or two? Yeah. Um, now, I, this gets away from the camps, actually, and sure. to my own, my own specialty, which is the Wehrmacht, the German military, um, and its role in the Holocaust. Um, there's one book by uh, Donald M. McHale called Hitler's Shadow War, the Holocaust in World War II. Um, it does a pretty good job of incorporating the, the military and uh, you know, genocidal aspects of the war. And then uh, a very good book um, by a friend of mine named uh, Waitman Bourne, B-E-O-R-N, um, called Marching into Darkness, the Wehrmacht and the Holocaust in Belarus, which is a uh, sort of micro-study of um, some German army units that were involved in, uh, in the massacre of the Jews in the East. Um, very, very interesting work. Excellent. Well, um, and, and for listeners who uh, may be relatively new, uh, Waitman's book um, was uh, the subject of an interview on a sister channel of ours, New Books in History, oh, maybe a year or so ago. So if you're interested, you can go track that podcast down and listen to him. Or as Jeff says, just go to read the book. It's a wonderful book. Um, so, Jeff, thank you so much for being on the show. I wish you the best of luck in what sounds like a lifetime endeavor. I think it will be. Um, <laughs> I guess the plus side of that is you don't need to worry about whether Social Security will be around because you will be working until the day you drop. But... Um, <laughs> But thank you so much for being on the show, and um, we look forward sometime down the road maybe to uh, having you on again to chat about the progress of the encyclopedia. All right, great. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Take care. You've been listening to an interview with Jeff McGarvey about the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum's Encyclopedia of Camps and Ghettos. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time when I'll continue our summer-long series of interviews about the camps and ghettos by interviewing Sarah Helm, the author of A Wonderful New History of Ravensbrück. Until then, thanks for the download, and have a great month.